welcome to the Make Every Media Podcast, or MIM TV, if you're watching on YouTube. I'm Michael Furstenfeld, wishing you a very happy Back to the Future Day, the 21st of October. It was on this day in 2015 that Marty McFly arrived in the future, fresh from 1985. And there were hoverboards and flying cars and video conferences and fax machines... And it is on this same day in 2022 that our Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, and Twitch subscribers are getting access to this very special pilot episode early. Now fast forward a couple of weeks to November 5th of 2022 when the rest of the world gets access to this pilot, and then rewind to 1955, the day that Marty McFly first arrived in the past and began to rewrite his own history. Today on Make Every Media, we're also doing some time travel, back to June 22nd of 2021, last summer, when we recorded a test run of a show that came straight out of the head of Peter Rogers like a flux capacitor while you're standing on the john to hang a clock. It's a show called Steal Every Media. And, well, I'll, I'll just let him explain that in more detail in a moment here. We recorded this conversation live on Twitch as a part of our Time Soup broadcast last summer. Peter Rogers is also the host, and Kevin Miller is his very special first guest. And then there's this whole second part of the show where the amazing clown Julie Moore comes in and talks about Commedia dell'arte, and then I'm brought in to help map the timelines of all three Back to the Future movies. It's ridiculous. It's too much. And we're still editing it down. And it will be available first to subscribers only. So if you like what you hear here and want to support this show and also get early access to Steal Every Media Part 2 later this year, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon or buy me a coffee or subscribing to our Twitch channel, which you can actually do for free if you have an Amazon Prime account. Find the links for all of that at linktree.com slash makeeverymedia. In the meantime, please enjoy part one of our 2022 Pilot Podcast Hatchery Program presentation, Steal Every Media, with Peter Rogers. Howdy, everybody, and welcome to our first episode, our first test run of the podcast Steal Every Media presented on behalf of Make Every Media. My name is Peter Rogers. I've been improvising here in Austin a little over 20 years, and I've also been writing and thinking a lot about how to come up with shows, what improv can do next, and especially how improv can connect to other art forms. Uh, to that end, we've got this show here, Steal Every Media. The idea is that a guest comes on with a beloved piece of art, a beloved piece of media, and we have a talk about what improv can steal from that piece of media, what techniques it can use, what ideas it can take, what it can run with to discover what new things improv can do. And that takes us to our guest today, who is Kevin Miller. He's also improvised in Austin for about 20 years. He was Dean of the Merlin Works School for a while here. He's appeared on The Mortified Guide over on Netflix and hosted Pints and PowerPoints. Kevin, what piece of media have you brought to discuss today? Hello, I have brought a true masterpiece for us to, <laughs> to pick apart and try to find any flaw with. 
<laughs> and then it's Back to the Future. Back to the Future. <laughs> 1985, Robert Zemeckis. Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis' baby for like five years going into that, right? The two Bobs, yeah. It's, mm. it, and it's remarkable, like, we could ramble on about the backstory <laughs> of the movie and how it... Oh I God. just read recently that Doc Brown was a character in a different script, and then they That's had right. a plan to uh they had this story about a kid going back in time and meeting his parents and they said let's just use this wacky yeah, scientist they character combine as the several ideas for it 80s cinema is fascinating to me because i would have been i would have been 10 in 1985 when this came out i would have been a perfect age to watch it and have it blow my tiny little mind yeah but i barely watched movies at, at all in my childhood oh. so there's this whole world of cinema that i i respect and love but I don't have the same connection to you as everybody else who got to. Yeah, and it's a shame. I've uh, my girlfriend is uh, is Dutch Australian and has not seen a lot of the classics. And my attempts to show her the classics have largely not gone well because many of these <laughs> movies that you should normally have the sentimentality for have not aged. It's just some of them are, are painful. But and Back to the Future, I was kidding about it, you know, trying to find flaws. There are certainly a few things that have not aged well oh, yeah. there, too. But it's uh, it's still just such a well-made Swiss watch of a movie that mm -hmm. I was a bit, I am a bit hesitant to talk about how we use it for improv because it's just so deliberately oh, created sure. and there's no fat on the on this movie you know just Absolutely. every line and every frame contributes directly to the story that they're telling and the improv is uh it's you, you want that. it to look like that yeah it's not that <laughs> you, oh, you try to make it look like that and usually uh, fail there, there are a couple of points in that i want to follow up but before we we dive into those. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your own history with the movie. Do you remember mm -hmm. when you first saw Back to the Future? Not, or not exactly. Did it sort of fade into view the way that... Yeah, yeah, faded into view is a good way to put it. I We had a VHS copy. My mom didn't approve of the, the language in the movie, uh, but let us, let me watch it begrudgingly. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, I was excited about it from a, a I was eight when it came out. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that was uh, much like you, prime age for me to to get into the cool looking sports car that turns into a spaceship at the end <laughs> of some movie. Uh, and maybe we'll touch a bit on Back to the Future 2 because I was, I think, 11, like even more oh, prime wow. and ready uh, and, for them to. Yeah. And you, you appeared on on a podcast specifically devoted to Back to the Future, right? Yes, uh, those listening to this podcast can uh, search for Back to the Future Minute, which is part of the quirky subgenre of podcasts that's called Movies by Minutes. And every single episode is uh, uh, breaking down the next sequential minute of the movie. So I was on one minute of Back to the Future Part 2 and another Part 3, but the entire trilogy's worth of podcasts is uh, hard to imagine them going into more detail. I love your point about like how much of this feels like one of those rock tumbling devices where you just take something rough, put it in there, turn it over for, you know, a long, long time and it comes out perfectly smooth. Like they, right. they edged off every possible error. Yeah. Except imagine that like Hollywood is a rock tumbler that destroys rocks. because. <laughs> <laughs> Just at any given moment, there are brilliant scripts that are being just torn to, to tiny little shreds 
the uh, the Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie nobody remembers oh, now. Oh my god! But yes. y- you know about this? I know like, the story, the, but please. The original script <laughs> went around Hollywood for ten, maybe twenty years, and it was just this famously amazing script. Originally called Nottingham, right? Uh, yeah, because it was about it had the sheriff of Nottingham as, as the protagonist, as the protagonist, <laughs> which is a brilliant, simple idea, and just like right. take my money. It was supposed to be really well done, and uh, by the time the Hollywood rock tumbler machine got done with it, it turned into a dark and gritty Robin Hood, which wasn't even bad. It was just so mediocre that half the people listening are like, wait, there was a Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, And so, yeah, to my point, Hollywood does that to good ideas. And in this case, (laughs) Hollywood took these like weird pieces of... Oh, wouldn't it be cool to meet your parents at your age? Mm-hmm. Oh, what about this wacky character? And then out came this just perfectly polished well, uh, and, rock. But, and back to gems, that was because Gale and Zemeckis had just made Romancing the Stone. Oh, and right. that was a huge success. And it's like, okay, you can do what you want now. Like, oh, we've got the script. We've it's got the script. <laughs> got it. And it, yeah, there, there's the whole uh eric stoltz being replaced by michael yeah. J. fox just so many things michael should J. have fox gone wrong to shoot it at the same time as family ties family so ties that was it he would he would finish his day of shooting on the sitcom and they would load him into like a van with a bed <laughs> and ship him <laughs> over to the and some cocaine <laughs> One would hope. part of the thing that makes this movie so damn good a huge part is just the chemistry between marty and doc so eric stoltz is a fine actor but uh, if that oh, doesn't yeah. work, then you have this pedophilic seeming like relationship between an old man and a high school student. Like the fact that they can make that l- seem like a loving, natural relationship with not an ounce of creepiness to it. it. It's miraculous. Absolutely. Yeah, they do a lot of they do a lot of hard work that you don't see on the surface, making weird ideas feel straightforward. I did a watch on this going into this and was just like really hit by how many things you cannot use at all. Like how much of the storytelling is uh, the, the phrase is pure cinema, how they don't mm-hmm. use dialogue or action to get an idea across. It's just yes. how they arrange the shots one after another. Oh, you see a news piece of news footage. You can't really hear it, but you see it and it says plutonium stolen. You see yes. Marty walk through the, like entry foyer of the lab, you see the skateboard roll and hit a box marked plutonium. I I got to run this experiment just when I was watching this before we uh, recorded. Uh, My girlfriend was there and I said, count, just say out loud everything you're learning from this opening shot. And my screenwriting professor in college uh, called it the best shot in Hollywood history. (laughs) Uh, Just and sure enough, just every element of the movie is laid out in this super uh, supernatural mm-hmm. way. Just one flowing take of the the camera. I don't know. It's just it's perfect. I have no bones to pick with it. Yeah. And that would be such a nightmare of an improv of like an opening one or two minutes where you introduce 20 different elements that all have to right. be picked up. I. You ever try a like murder mystery in improv? It's just like everyone a... tries to throw out clues and suspicious behaviors and it all gets dropped. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah, the the best way I've seen that work is to create hidden information for the cast where the cast knows mm. who's getting killed and who did the killing. The audience right. doesn't, and you build mm. around that. And then but, you build around that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that that's freaking great. And everything short of that is like an improv story 
needs to be about one thing, you know, and, mm. and I don't mean that literally. You can have your A and B plot if you're doing a long form thing, yeah. but you need to define really clearly uh, up front. And, you know, the way that Back to the Future connects to that is it's got a really simple log line of kid goes back in time, meets his teenage parents. Uh, and awesome. If you gave that to, a, I, I bet if you got a class full of young <laughs> improvisers today, half yeah. of them wouldn't have seen Back to the Future. So you could say, <laughs> here. It's improvise from it. some and... old movie you haven't heard of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you can uh, as long as you have just a a piece of the uh, just the kernel of the the story that you're going to tell, then it's fine. But you can't just start laying out random yeah. bits and hope that it's going to stitch together. It's going to do well, the rock tumbler thing, but bad. Oh god! And that that takes me to a couple of points I find really cool about. Um, Back to the Future in particular. Uh, mm -hmm. The first one is that, I wish I could credit this properly, but there was a tweet that described 80s genre movies as being like the first eight minutes of a traditional drama and at the end, the last eight minutes of a traditional drama and in between is where all the genre stuff happens. Wow. Um, so an example they cited was Die Hard in its initial minutes. Mm -hmm. is about a New York cop whose marriage is falling apart because he can't handle his wife's success on some level. Yeah. And then the Amazing. end is them back together having resolved the issues that were frustrating between them. Um, wow. And, and here in, in Back to the Future, you've got like an opening sequence that's um, what Marty is trying to set up the big date while dealing with just seething interfamily problems like nobody yeah. seems to really like each other nobody's happy and right. you could definitely see a drama coming out of and then by the end in addition to everything else what the core of it is that the family is healthy and affectionate and like in a better place yeah in a better place yeah I was uh, on this most recent watch. I was like, oh, they aren't quite as dysfunctional as I thought. Like they're having dinner oh, yeah. as a family. The, yeah. the older brother and the dad are like laughing together at the thing. And uh, and that's useful in the movie because it when it's not wildly implausible for everyone to be getting along at the end. You know, everyone's just yeah. like everyone's just ticked up a, a notch. It's not a good situation. His mother <laughs> is an alcoholic who's not quite sure why she married her husband. Like, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was just, a, it was a tiny bit nicer than I remembered it being. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that, like there's, they don't go so far that you just hate them all. Like they, right. they keep you in a place where you're like, your heart kind of goes out to them and that exactly. puts you in the, in their, the slot for the rest of the movie. And that's, yeah. I think absolutely something that, because we do so many genre shows in improv, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if anybody really thinks about like well i've seen shows do this to greater or lesser extents but the notion of we're just gonna do a drama that happens mm -hmm. to have a genre thing show up for most of its runtime and yeah feeling that structure back to the future is very much that so uh whenever i would teach narrative improv or whenever I teach genre specifically i would draw yeah. a circle on the whiteboard and i would write in heist movie and I would say, all right, fill the, fill the scent. What do we got? You know, mm. a big safe. Got it. Uh, the, the wild card, you know, uh, shootouts, just all the, you know, explaining the plan, everything you can think of for a heist movie. And this is what Merlin works anyway, maybe everywhere, uh, mm. is called the circle of expectations. And then, uh, I would, you know, I would say you're allowed one thing outside of the circle expect of expectations. 
Uh, so you can have a heist movie and then there can be a dinosaur and that's fine. You know, all right, we've got a dinosaur as part of the crew. Let's play with that twist on it. But you cannot have a dinosaur and aliens land because then yeah. you're on the train to crazy town. And in back to the future is not uh, a time travel movie with something else as the twist. It's a it's a family movie or as you say, uh, like it has dramatic underpinnings and time travel is the twist. Time travel is the unexpected thing that you know, right and, straightens and his life out. That kind of matches how they came up with the movie, as I understand it. Around 1980, mm -hmm. when they were doing used cars, um, mm -hmm. as I read in the Wikipedia, it was, I think, <laughs> Bob Gale visiting his parents and thinking, wow, how did these people ever become friends? <laughs> kind of not in a harsh way, but like <laughs> he just couldn't imagine them as as teenagers meeting. And I don't even think time travel was necessarily part of the plot at that point. Like there are other means of magic whereby you see young versions right. of, of your parents. Right. Um, and it, it could have been uh, just like -da -da -da, he just wakes up and it's never explained, you know? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my actual favorite movie is Groundhog Day. And maybe the greatest strength in that movie is that <laughs> they don't explain it. So it's it's not an automatic back to the future would have been bad if they you know, didn't have a, a time traveling DeLorean uh, element to it. Uh, mm, but yeah. Good thing yeah. it worked out to me. And this this may be way off, but as as I think back on all time travel movies uh, as a whole it feels like after the back to the future most of the time travel movies i think of have the sort of back to the future 2 feel the sort of christopher nolan feel especially mm -hmm. of the time travel is is doing a lot of interesting plot mechanics like mm -hmm. okay this is going to show you how this fits in with this and this other thing is actually this person from the past but right. They were looking away from the camera or something like that. And that becomes spectacularly hard to do in improv of um, coming <laughs> no, up don't with try the that. one time travel thing that explains the 20 weird things you have done before. I was on a Doctor Who improv show. I, I had that job a lot of the time and it is <laughs> exceptionally challenging and not something yeah. you want to count on. Um, no, don't God, don't do that to yourself. Like, why would you hobble yourself in in that way? We, the progression of linear time is a is a gift when it comes to telling an improv <laughs> story. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, Back to the Future Two is very much more like um, loops and loops and going around other stories that have already happened, and especially all the time travel stories I think of since then. Um, mm -hmm have that really strong element of we're solving the puzzle box. Um, yeah. And honestly, I wonder if that makes improvisers kind of shy away from time travel as a genre thing, just because in modern times, it's so, um, again, puzzle boxy and not so much thematic the way it hits in Back to the Future. For reasons already stated, I hope it makes them shy away from it. Yeah, <laughs> if they're going to try and do that version of it. <laughs> yeah, or if you're going to come up with a time travel format, then it needs to be a time travel format. And it needs to have some mm -hmm. kind of structure to uh, prevent, you know, just rails on the thing uh, to, to guide you along. And past a certain point, it's like, why is this improv in the first place, you know? So oh, yeah. it's nice to, yeah. Um, and I've seen just truly madcap things. Uh, <laughs> one of my all-time favorite, just one-off, uh, maybe not one-off, uh, improv formats I saw was Improv for Evil doing Time Hobo. 
Did you see this? I've heard the legends. I didn't see the show. I know it was a running <laughs> joke in that improv troupe for like yeah. a decade. And then they finally did. Yeah, this the premise is there's a time machine. And all of this is explained at the beginning. There's a time machine uh, and it's tuned only for one person. It can only you know work for the person that's in it the first time it's used. And mm. then uh, on the night that it's left alone, a, uh, a homeless person uh, played by Jason Vines uh, gets in there and takes a nap and is zapped back in time. And now only this hobo can put uh, time travel problems right again. So, oh, wow. it, it, you know, the fun of the genre there is just the wildly unqualified person trying to do this, yeah. uh, this expert work. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic. And <laughs> good example of like the, the rails are the, the format, you know, the stuff that's mm-hmm. explained before the improv even starts. And now mm-hmm. you have a nice type format. And that works because you're just jumping around from one thing to another. You're not looping back on yourself. You're not puzzle boxing anything. uh, And everyone can just enjoy the the Bill and Ted silliness of it, you know? Yeah. And that's something I, that's a really good point is that there are so many classically improv style games you can play with the notion of time travel. Um, And that you see some of that in the, in Back to the Future, how good of a game they make out of, Marty McFly consistently screwing up his references and everyone around him assuming he's a sailor, right? Yes, <laughs> with the life preserver. And those vests have uh, have come back into style since 1985. <laughs> so we talk about a full circle thing. Uh, side um, note, I always said that the only Back to the Future remake I would ever accept would be made in 2015 and go back in time to 1985. To but the making of that- Back to the Future. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, now, now that that window is closed, then there there should be no. Uh, and uh, I won't spoil it here, but uh, anyone listening can go to have they remade Back to the Future yet dot com and uh, and see the results. Oh god! But yeah, that was that was like a another sort of watershed in that it was early enough in these blockbuster franchises that uh, Gail and Zemeckis got veto privileges over anything in perpetuity. <laughs> And the so, uh, the proverbial blank check. Yep, um, yep. <laughs> to use pod- podcast lingo. So that that reminds me that like time travel, you can use it for games for really solid, fun improv games, and then mm-hmm. there's also the notion of using it for something thematic and kind of relationshipy. And so Back yeah. to the Future gets both, and both are available to improv. I think, um, especially what you said about remaking it in 2015. There's something so unique about the 1955, 1985 difference, just because there was um, there was such an invention of the 1950s that was still kind of holding on at that point. That, yes. Um, if we look back to like right now, it would be a flashback to like 1991, 1992, mm-hmm. um, where we kind of there's a lot of footage of everyday people in 91, 92, if, if a parent f- who was a teenager then, who was my age, essentially, um, yeah. came up with all sorts of stories about what life was like then, like right. a, a few minutes on the internet would give the lie to all of it. It was a genre there for a while. Happy Days was this, uh, Grease was this, you know, just this yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 30 years ago, things were better. And like, <laughs> you know, it it's more problematic the more you think about it and it's become more problematic as time goes by because it's almost literally the making america great again narrative oh yeah the the notion that the 50s were a a nice idyllic time and 
Back to the Future really plays it up. There's all this graffiti mm-hmm. on the school in the 80s, but not in the 50s. In the 50s. And, <laughs> and Marty, who has a rather dumb line where he says, man, they really cleaned this place up. It looks brand new. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's true. It, it, we don't need to go uh, off on a woke rant about it. But yeah, there, it's problematic in the existence of the genre. Oh, yeah. Uh, but even within that genre, there are there are tropes that you can use. And good God, tropes are your friends if you are <laughs> trying to do... Because back to the, the heist thing, if mm-hmm. I get a group of improvisers I've never met before and say, I want to see a heist movie, then their brains immediately start firing off with all these references. And so does the audiences. And it's yeah. great. Everyone in the room is on the same page. And so if, uh, if someone uh, says, all right, I've got a job for you, then we know it's going to be the biggest job of his career. We mm-hmm. know that, or, or, or her, or there, uh, we know that the thief is going to demand to retire. This is the last one. We know something's going to go wrong in the middle of it. Just you know, like the oh. checkboxes are going to be checked. And that's not only fine, that's fantastic, you know, because sometimes we watch movies just to watch the, the wheels spin in just such a way. Uh, and uh, that's the reason there have been 40 James Bond movies because we like mm-hmm. uh, watch it. We, we like seeing what variety they can come up with uh, in as they are checking off yeah. those boxes. So please check off the boxes and trust the silliness of improv to provide the, uh, the elements the of chaos. chaos, you know, in the middle yeah. of that. And I'd add to that, like we also watch these movies because we know we don't have to spend the first 15 minutes with like, ham-handed exposition saying this is a heist this is what a heist is this is how heists work (laughs) you know you don't have to build the infrastructure for a genre you can just go with the story and everyone's on the same page yes and it can be something like you and i worked on fiasco together which is a genre that you know audience members aren't going to get so oh yeah somewhat popular uh board game (laughs) uh and no offense it's a fantastic board game uh, and, but yeah, it's just nothing that the average audience member has in their head, but you can get your, your troop, your, your cast together, uh, and crew and say, all right, these are, this is what we, this is our playground. This is our sandbox. And these are the toys that we have in the sandbox, uh, and how we can, you know, all the different ways we can put them together and you rehearse, you know, the way you rehearse any improv and get used to those tropes and get used to putting them together. And then you put it in front of an audience who's never heard of Fiasco, who might never have seen a Coen Brothers movie, uh, but they connect with it because it all it it looks uh, it looks polished. It looks like it just came out of a rock tumbling machine, oh, you no, know, pristine. Oh, uh, and it's really that. just people. Oh. Yeah, it's really just people checking those mental boxes. Like, yeah, oh, I see. We we are and, here, and therefore that. And it's a side thing of like, if you're doing an improv show that doesn't have like a heist, that doesn't have a standard genre that goes along with it, that sets audience expectations. Right. Uh, if you don't have that, then it's even more incumbent on you to set expectations with every single tool you have. Like mm-hmm. the font on the flyer or on the program should tell them, should give them some indication of what genre they're in for. So like for Fiasco in that case, um, we were working yeah. off of Coen Brothers movies via a, a board, a tabletop role-playing game. That's not a genre that we can count on the audience knowing. So everything we're using, like the classic Hitchcock Saul Bass font. We are mm-hmm. using his sort of artwork. We're playing the sort of jazz you would associate with an old heist movie that or an old crime caper. Everything to get them in the pocket of 
of sort of inventing the genre for them as they're walking in the door and sitting down to watch your show. Exactly. And you and I know damn well through Fiasco, but also through many uh, hideout uh, main stage shows that we've seen and been a part of uh, the extent to which the the tech, the crew can help make this happen. Just the, the okay. lights and sound and music choices <laughs> can uh, psychologically affect the audience to get them in the mood that they need to uh, to get at. And so you could go up and not even speak English and understand, you know, what's, <laughs> uh, what mood is being projected at you and you can get involved in that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to tug on the thread of um, comparing 1955 and 1985, not on the mm-hmm. problematic aspects of it, but rather like this notion of if you kind of how how good 80s cinema is at uh, or 80s genre cinema is at presenting things that feel kind of out of time and apolitical. And as soon as you kind of scrape off the surface of them a little bit, you see it engaging in something that's really of the time and mm. social and a social issue at the time. So like Back to the Future, innocent story about traveling in time and meeting your parents. But like you look at it closely, it's like our parents have been lying to us about the 1950s. <laughs> Let's dig into that. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, it, it almost should have gone the other way. It not should have. It's great the way it is, but you can imagine oh, yeah. the alternative when they are speaking rose. Man, it, l- l- let's just workshop a remake right now of Back to the Future <laughs> where the parents are going on about how amazing it was 30 years ago. How yeah. That's when America was great. And then the protagonist <laughs> goes back in time and sees, oh, that's how it is. And, mm. and the movie dips its toe into that in terms yeah. of like the dad being a peeping Tom and the mom, uh, you know, being a big drinker as a, as a teenager. And uh, what is but, his name? Goldie, Goldie Brown, um, Goldie Wilson, the, Goldie Wilson, who is yeah. stuck sweeping, sweeping the floors, floors at the diner and yeah. doesn't have a chance to do his destiny as mayor of the town as the mayor oh yeah there's that's one of the uh the things that is not aged well is the fact that like marty gives the uh gives the black uh, uh floor sweeper the idea to run for mayor which oh, he successfully yeah, yeah. does and then later he inspires chuck berry to make you to know, invent rock and roll <laughs> yeah exactly uh th- that might get a pass because it's technically an endless time loop <laughs> he's just hearing so, music we could say chuck he... berry invented his own music it just right exactly. where you put the start and end of the loop yeah so uh but um uh, yeah no it's it's interesting to imagine the the alternative uh, but you know i mean part of the reason the movie works is because it does a bit of both that you yeah. know it uh, it has fun with like, all right, things were nicer on the surface uh, back in the 50s. Uh, but, uh, you know, it can't say it's not quite the are... world that our parents told the, told us it was. It's, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So mm. I'm over here thinking I need to find out, like, I can't imagine my parents ever being in love. And uh, they're yeah. <laughs> great. And they're just, you know. This is nothing against either one of them, but uh, they're such different people. And uh, yeah, I need to talk to them sometime about like, take me back. <laughs> no, I'm curious, like what this was, what this is like. And I know as any adult knows how people change over time. So yeah. uh, it would just be interesting to hear the story of, of how it evolved, you know? Yeah. So like Bob Gale had that conversation and I think also was getting inconsistent information from his parents <laughs> at different times when they don't understand. <laughs> A little Rashomon um, thing happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was it's thinking good. like, 
like Star Wars seems completely apolitical if you don't think realize it was made right after like Watergate and all of those things. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. There's just so many things where we feel like to do genre work or to do sci-fi, we are going to abstract it out of the world we're in. Um, and yeah, no, I mean that, that's, that never geez. works in my opinion. <laughs> well, it doesn't work, and it, it shouldn't work. Like what yeah. sci-fi should do is uh, is talk about themes that exist in the here and now. Uh, what fantasy should do is show the ways that you know character motivations are consistent no matter how many dragons yeah. are flying at you <laughs> uh and, and which spell you're using uh yeah because that's all world building stuff i should know i've like tried to write a book over and over and i just can't oh, get no. out of the world building elements you know and i'm like no but it needs to be uh, it needs to be about people you know yeah. So yeah, if you're doing a freaking genre, then that's your that's your excuse for being on stage. That might be uh, yeah. overstating it, but uh, it's it's not the reason anyone's going to to care. Sean Hill used to say uh, after like an, an okay show, he would say, "I think the audience liked it. I don't think they'll be thinking about it tomorrow." Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Everything that was twenty plus years ago that he said that, and then I think about that to this day. Wow. And uh, I've said, you know, my my wisdom that I've told students before is like, your goal should not be to get a laugh. Your goal should be to get the audience to go, oh, yeah. you know, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't even have to be a sappy thing but that's yeah. some that's an indication that's they've experienced an emotion that they'll be remembering as they yeah. as they walk out of the theater you know yeah you're making memories with with your show yeah exactly another thing back to the future does well uh is uh real and that directly relates to improv <laughs> is lots and lots and lots of exposition and not just exposition but repeated exposition and uh-huh. i loved that from as an improviser uh, they're sitting at dinner and the daughter says, no, we know mom, you felt sorry for dad. So you took him to the fish oh, under the sea yeah. dance. No, no, it was the enchantment under the sea dance. <laughs> and, you know, it just tells the story so explicitly. They get back to the fifties. There's posters all over the place for the enchantment under enchantment. the sea dance. And yeah. And it just like, you, they repeat it so much that you couldn't, you could see <laughs> back to the future once, but you would remember that the name of the dance was the enchantment under the sea dance. Uh, yeah. and great we, we've done the activity where you see how many times you can say a character's name in the scene which and it's never a, too sounds, many <laughs> never too many like it, it sounds way less awkward than you think it will sound to just like say it over and over and uh by the there's uh the tj and dave uh trust us this is all made up mm-hmm. they're at one point in the the thing they're talking about the boss who they're planning to kidnap and the boss's <laughs> name is lon chambers and they say it repeatedly like that just stretched out lawn chambers and i will never in for my life forget the name lawn chambers from this random improv show the back of the future does that he talks you know he talks about the the pine tree he drives past the twin pines mall he talks about Mm -hmm. he had this pine tree notion and the angry farmer says you killed my pine trees and uh, so that by the time we get the payoff of the Lone Pine Mall at the end of the movie, then it, it's perfectly set up in your in your brain and just yeah, like something a couple things I would add to that that people can keep in mind for shows is that um, long exposition at the start of a show can often mm-hmm. actually be good in that like 
that's where the audience is like, oh, you're telling me what's a thing that's going on that's true about this world. And there's like this conscious, like, okay, I'm in good hands. I, I, and there, there's not a whole action sequence that started up to get interrupted by somebody with a clipboard saying, now this is how time travel works. Um, right, exactly. And, and they're great yeah. at making a lot of the, the exposition into, into real character interactions, like the mm -hmm. getting the name wrong for enchantment under the, under the sea. That is a classic, like, yes, the kid is tired of hearing about this. They're whining <laughs> about it. And then the parent is needlessly correcting them on a detail. Like, yes. All of that sits so deeply into character. Oh, God, it's so great. Like, uh, who gives a shit about the name of the dance? Uh, well, the mom does, because yes. it was the last time she was happy. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, even if that's not literally true, it's like, obviously, it has some resonance for her if 30 years later, she's like, nope, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, right. And, like, it doesn't have to be that tragic, but when something impacts you as a character, then you're going to care about it to that, uh, to yeah. that level. You use the exposition to inform your character, to create conflicts in the moment, to do, you, you're still doing storytelling as much as you can, even while you're mm -hmm. getting all that info out. And the movie uh, works with repetition as well. Another great, you know, the lawn chambers thing. Uh, mm -hmm. It works with repetition with uh, Biff bullying George in two different time periods, almost mm. word for word. And good, that's character. That shows that nothing has changed from one thing to the next. Uh, and the payoff there is, again, at the end of the movie, when uh, this time it's George who's being the, the bully or you know, close enough to it. <laughs> rule of threes. <laughs> yeah, like the big rule of threes stretches across the entire trilogy, which is Marty getting knocked out and having the mom is that you uh, scene <laughs> with his with his mother. And just seeing the variation that they come up with across three wildly different uh, uh, time periods. Uh, and yeah, by the third one, they're not even trying to fake you on it. You're, <laughs> you're just like feeling the satisfaction of, ah, yes, third in a series. I'm enjoying this. And, and that reminds me, too, of like how much of Chicago style, Harold style, like we're doing this scene and then repeating a variation in the next beat and then repeating a variation in the next beat just mm -hmm. how much of that you can do in narrative and it helps yeah. tie it together and helps again, set audience expectations. So that they... And tells you what to do as well. There, mm -hmm. There's the uh, half-life improv game mm -hmm. where, you know, do a scene and then do it in half that time and half that time. So you go from two minutes to one minute to 30 seconds and so forth. And when that game works, it usually works because there's a killer button on it. Even if it's not a super funny button, it's something that uh, the player can say and the audience knows, aha, we have reached the end. And the person in the booth knows, aha, it's time to to pull the lights. And yeah, yeah, it's it's delightful whenever you can hit that over and over and over. And maybe by the last time you go, it's just the player announcing loudly to the button and then the, the lights being pulled. One thing that I, I noticed too that really struck me um, was the ability this movie has to use to sort of weaponize audience discomfort um <laughs> like this first hit me with the first time george mcfly or yeah george mcfly asks out lorraine and ends up saying uh what was the line like my density has popped me into you yes just like <laughs> they're setting up a situation you're like no this i i can't even imagine how bad this is going to be and they <laughs> keep making it worse and worse and more doomed. And then when it 
when the scene turns into something else, you get this huge relief out of it. And right. And yeah, it's a good moment because despite him radically screwing up, uh, she thinks it's kind of cute, mm. uh, which is which is a great rom-com trope in and of itself is you do the mm-hmm. thing wrong and, uh, and a potential romantic partner is charmed anyway. And uh, it makes it uh, more plausible that she's going to fall for him at the at the end of yeah, the movie when, yeah. he, when he stands up. I did want to say, yeah, talk a bit about the the famous punch when George McFly finally like wallops. Him. Oh yeah, I've, I've often used that as a perfect example of characters not changing who they are because uh, you know George has this moment of rage, goes <laughs> into a fist and punches out Biff, and you know great emotional reveal, and then he turns to Lorraine and his voice and hand shake and are, are you okay? And mm. he's still George. He hasn't like hulked out on us. And it, it's he just had a moment of bravery. And you believe that the bravery was inside him the whole time. You don't think he just suddenly became someone else. And you certainly wouldn't want him to oh, permanently yeah. become someone else. So he's, yeah. he's just George and he's done that. And it's nice whenever um, Cookie Monster is uh, another example I always give of like a <laughs> compelling character we love cookie monster because he just has the one thing and every single thing <laughs> that uh you throw at him will be filtered through the fact that like he loves cookies, cookies. Yeah. yeah so much so cookie monster might do a scenario where he punches somebody out but he's still gonna want a cookie to celebrate that he sure. and you know, punch um, the bully yeah like sometimes i think of this as like characters don't change who they are but maybe they change how they deal with who they are or how they work with who they are like cookie monster of late has decided that cookies are a sometimes food sometimes food yeah exactly that doesn't change his fundamental nature that's just different behavior layered on top of it It, exactly and it's yeah like ron swanson is another just famously compelling you know like compelling characters can be one dimensional at, at least mm. on the surface at least on the you know how they interact with the world and ron swanson is a certain way but uh you know by the end of the series he's supporting leslie nope's uh campaign even though she's against everything that he stands for but they do it in this nice elegant way where you see yeah this fits his moral compass to be supporting his friend in this way uh and yeah. to see that there's something something deeper there beyond uh, the, the the politics of, of how they're running this small town you know Right. So I'm trying to think if there are improv exercises already based around that. Like you have this character who is very simple and wants this one thing. How do we take mm -hmm. that character to all of these different kind of points on the circle? How do we make them? How does how can we make this person bravely fight a dragon? How can we make this person like completely get frustrated in line at the DMV? Like, how can you? take a character to situations that don't seem to have to do with their character or don't seem in line with the cookie monster getting cookies, but still they're holding on to that and finding a way to do the thing. One of Jill Bernard's six uh, characteristics of a character, her Vapapo model, like how you make a character. Yeah, voice attitude, voice attitude, posture, animal prop obsession. And so obsession would be, you know, the cookie monster attitude would be the, the Ron Swanson and so forth. But it can, it can be as simple as just standing a certain way. And you know that your voice and attitude are going to flow from the fact that you're hunched over and using a, a cane and, and something like that. Uh, and yeah, I've done activities like, uh, okay, you're uh, walking around up and down the grocery store and you're just shopping for groceries. Go ahead as yourself. Don't be funny. Don't yeah. amuse me. Go. 
and then uh, and then I'll call out. Okay, uh, you're still you're still at HEB. You're still looking for uh, for the the skim milk, uh, but you are a trained assassin and you are ready for uh, ninjas <laughs> to pop out at any moment. Yeah. Uh, okay, now you're a person who's just won the lottery, but knows that you cannot possibly tell anyone. You need to keep this a secret, but you mm. you still need that skim milk, you know. <laughs> and so it's. Uh, it's not quite what you're saying. It's it's almost the opposite. It's like here's a here's an activity, and how are people with different sorts of attitudes? It's the converse of it, sort of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's like that classic. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm gonna do the next. Where you know your character has to do the next thing, and you're just gonna leap into the action and find afterwards how this person justifies it to themselves. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, uh, <laughs> I remember once uh. It was a space work error on my part where I think I've told you um, it was a Thanksgiving scene. We had space worked a table right down the center of the stage towards the audience. Uh, and at one point I was a member of the family. And at one point I crossed across the stage like an idiot and just walked right through the imaginary through. table that oh, we had no. really clearly defined. And everyone else in that scene, I, there were like five of us. And, and so the other four all in just perfect unison. Were like, holy, what the why'd you do that and we're just like <laughs> lighting up and i and i realized what i had done and but it was it was a beautiful gift from my castmates like i turned around i was like that's right no more thanksgiving <laughs> yeah and then i just and then just what i knew of my character thus far i had to put together a, a monologue about like why i suddenly hated thanksgiving and yep. it, it had to end <laughs> excellent uh, I think this might be a good point uh, to bring in, let's see, uh, Michael Furstenfeld is here on the call. Uh, he's been setting up an entire map of the uh, of the time travel throughout the, the uh, oh, series, which I am eager to see. Just when you think you're the biggest nerd, <laughs> there's always a bigger nerd comes along. And this is where Michael Furstenfeld comes back in again from the future, October 21st or November 5th of 2022, to remind you that you can get early access to the rest of this conversation, part two of Steal Every Media, by becoming a Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, or Twitch subscriber. And you can follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash makeeverymedia to catch us live and be a part of the conversation. Or email us at makeeverymedia at gmail.com if you need help building your podcast, movie, app, game, virtual conference, broadcast. Check out more of our work or book a discovery meeting at makeeverymedia.com. Or again, linktree.com slash makeeverymedia to find quick links to all of our support channels. Today's background music was provided by Scooter Holiday. You can find more of his music at scooterholiday.com. Very special thanks to Peter Rogers for hosting this episode and doing this test run with us. You can find more about him at his website, www.peterrogers.info. And you can hear another podcast that Peter's working on called Tales from the Black Vault at blackvault.net. And also a very special thanks to our guest, Kevin Miller, to Benjamin Blackberg, Julie Moore, Amber Quick, Lindsay McGowan, Paul Normandin, and Steven Robinson, and Todd Meehan for being there in the chats when we were broadcasting. And finally, thanks to all the improv schools and communities out there, especially in Austin, Texas. I'm talking about Merlin Works, The Hideout Theater, The Fallout, Cold Town Theater, Shannon Stott's Improv On and Off the Stage. We'll put links to all of those in the episode's show notes. I'm pretty sure they all have free intro classes if you're looking to explore the improvisational arts. But that's enough links and thanks for now. 
I'll let Kevin and Peter wrap this up with their summaries a full 40 minutes later in the conversation after Jules and I came in. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. Here's Kevin and Peter. Yeah, I don't have a, a big uh, summary statement or anything. I, I, it's a movie that knows what it wants to do and just does it. It just knocks the balls out of the park as fast as they come. And yeah. the the iconic characters that it's an excellent point, Julie, about their cartoonish forms. Like that's a great way to think about it. Like you can just picture them. Yeah. I can see what the loopy cartoon version of George McFly would look like. And that's a sign of good characterization as opposed to some, I don't know, fast and furious movie, maybe, <laughs> which is good in its own way, but not in the way of, you know, having distinct, interesting characters. Yeah. I, I guess my final thoughts are just in the, kind of bigger picture of if you're an improviser, how you can watch a movie, like how you can look through the, the things that make a movie great and see that there are that there are some like pure cinema things like action sequences that aren't gonna work well on stage. But there are maybe things that you didn't think of at first, like how well an actor is clowning in a role that will mm. translate perfectly to your medium. And I just I hope we can have more conversations like this of of seeing what art has to offer us that we may not have thought of going into it.